Welcome to Ride On. I'm James Gross, and I am joined by my co-host, Julia Fain, back from somewhere and gone forever. <laughs> all the Where readers want to know. Yeah. All the listeners want to know. All the viewers want to know. The readers. The readers and listeners. Where has Julia Fain been? Is we need she... a little tracker, a little Carmen San Diego tracker for me. Yeah, I have been on vacation. I went to um, Singapore and to Bali. This is great. That's where yeah. you know the common American goes for a vacation. That's great. <laughs> this is not hashtag yes, blessed yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, oh wow, really? Did you do that, James? <laughs> Interesting. Okay, let's see who gets canceled first from the show. It's probably not going to be me. <laughs> well, how was Bali? How was Singapore? Uh, both were great. Both were great. I mean, I was there for vacation, but um, me being me, I can't help out but do a little bit of um, help myself but do a little bit of transportation nerding out. So in Singapore, I rode public transit everywhere and I walked everywhere. And I found, um, honestly, the pedestrian experience wasn't what I expected it to be. It is um, a lot more highways there, like freeways and um, fast moving uh traffic than I expected, even though there are sidewalks and pretty nice sidewalks throughout. So that was one thing that was interesting to me about Singapore. And then the second uh, part on Bali um, and my transportation nerding out is um, I'm really hoping my mom actually doesn't listen to this episode, but mom, I'm sorry about this. I I rode on a lot of of backs of motorbikes in in Bali. Um, If you all have traveled to Asia, like Southeast Asia in particular, you might have used Gojek. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly helpful. It's like a Uber on steroids. Um, and one of the things it allows you to do is ride hailing for scooters in particular. So uh, honestly, what was awesome is I was there for a wedding. I found myself beating most of the other wedding guests to venues um, because I was riding on the on the back of a scooter. Um, and I also had some pretty hilarious uh, in- encounters in terms of being in my, my wedding formal wear and having to ride side saddle on a motorbike with, um, uh, you know, a Balinese uh, person driving. So uh, it was, it was all great fun. Do they have a helmet for you? They sure do. They sure do. They don't great. smell particularly good, but yes, they do have a helmet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's cool. That, and, and uh, is the driver always wearing a helmet? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I like how James, James, do you need to put your safety vest on in order to ask well, these questions? I mean, yeah. yeah. Or do you want to have your construction helmet on uh, in order to probe? <laughs> Curious on liability there, uh, given it's kind yeah. of like an official app. I would, I would yeah. imagine that has to yeah. happen, but I wasn't sure. That's a great question. Sure. We should, we should ask that to our guest uh, later today, our insurance uh, company representative. Um, he might Good have point. the answer to that. Yep. He Good might have point. the answer to that. And look at Julia, right back to business, already teasing out the episode. That's good, Julia. I appreciate that. So welcome back. We'll get we'll get right into this one. Um, to start, before we get into a lot of news, because we've been off for a couple of weeks, so we'll, we'll keep you around a little bit longer this episode. Um, hopefully you like it. If you don't, um, let us know as well. Um, but to start with a couple of announcements, we are uh, incredibly excited to introduce the first round of speakers to Microbility America, of course, happening in October in the San Francisco Bay Area. We put out a newsletter around this. You can see this at our website, microbility.io. Um, and so we've got a, a, a great list of names, including manufacturers, uh, operators, uh, brand, policymakers, investors, uh, media people. And again, like kind of a really cool cross-section from you know leaders in the world of the fire department in the US to um, you know people talking about at the cutting edge of, of battery safety, both in the uh, uh, private market and the public market, as well as, of course, the you know the best people in everything from scooters to e-bikes to um, neighborhood electric vehicles and more. So that that uh, initial speaker lineup is out, and uh, look for more of us, uh, more from us there. Uh, and then, second announcement is we also have a giveaway from our friends at uh, GoFlu, uh, who I interviewed Julie Betts while while Julio was gone. Um, that was a great interview. You can check that out. Um, we also have quite a few shorts out, but we're giving away uh, both a what Julie calls a body glower, which is sort of a jacket, as well as a, a bag. Um, these are awesome, functional. I actually got myself some GoFlu gear that I wore uh, this week um, with my family. And so I'm, I'm really excited that uh, we'll be able to give that away. In order to win, you can leave a comment uh, on YouTube and subscribe to the channel, as well as uh, go over to ridereview.com and enter your email um, for your chance there. So that's it for the announcement, Julia. Do you want to dive into the news for the week or the the last couple of weeks, I should say? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know how sometimes there are giveaways that you want to yourself like 
uh, subscribe to. Is it? I feel like in this case, the GoFluo is mine. Like I want to put my name in for the GoFluo giveaway. So James, if you have anything left over in City Dust that you all can send up uh, my way to LA, I'm, I'm all about wearing the GoFluo gear. Um, cool. So let's dive into the news. <laughs> let's dive into the news. Uh, I'm going to go over four new stories this week. Um, some big things have been happening while I've been gallivanting around Bali and also James has been out doing whatever James has been doing. Uh, the first new story is around enforcing traffic laws. Um, one year after introducing its new 24-7 automatic traffic ticketing system, New York City has found that speed violations have dropped by 30%. It's really interesting, uh, actually, to get this data from New York City, um, because as James and I have talked a lot about, uh, automated uh, traffic ticketing is um, something that's been debated uh, in in terms of being uh, implemented in different cities across the U.S. for good reasons, for bad reasons, for equity reasons, um, uh, has or has not been implemented. Um, What New York City did is it's got about 2,000 traffic cameras across the city. Those cameras used to only operate from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., What they found is when they uh, were able to operate those uh, uh, cameras 24-7, that they then saw um, speed violations drop. What that means is that New Yorkers are finally deciding to behave according to the traffic laws themselves, and this automated uh, traffic ticketing system is helping them to do so. So James, what do you think? Are we going to see this roll out in other cities, or is the data from New York not enough? Uh, yeah, I, I do think it's going to roll out in other cities, and I think it's great that you know New York, as probably the most important city in the U.S., continues to lead the way. So a couple of funny stories here, uh, Julia. One is there's this uh, kind of great uh, banter going around the internet while you were gone, which was the the um, the, the founder of of The Wire, the very popular show on TV. The, the you know uh, David Simon, he uh, tweeted out how he got a ticket actually from one of these cameras during the off hours. Um, and it was in a school zone and he said he went, he was going 11 miles per hour over the speed limit and he was just, you know, so upset that he was, he got this camera in July, uh, this ticket in July when school clearly isn't in session. Um, some people of course got after him about this comment, one pointing out that 11 miles per hour over the speed limit is a pretty serious violation and, you know, it's the reason why you get a ticket Two, a lot of people pointed out that a lot of kids are still actually in summer school. Um, and they go to school for things like picking up their lunches, where a lot of New York City schools actually provide lunches for kids um, of lower income and, and other things like that. Uh, and then three, street blogs, our friends over at street blogs, went and actually did a little analysis um, because a lot of this data is actually public by license plate uh, and found that David Simons actually has um, 11 speeding tickets in New York City. Um, so not the best time necessarily to open your mouth. And again, kind of speaks to, Julia, something we've talked a lot about, which is... Um, this idea that like when it comes to the just criminal justice system, um, there's a lot of people that just sort of think laws don't apply to them. I mean, mm. we're we're living through the last four or five years where people, you know, wanted to not enforce laws anymore in traffic. We've covered that quite a bit. And I think we have like this, and again, hopefully it's New York leading it, this sort of sane approach to how we're going to like work in the future, which is, and again, this is a, a a relatively American issue. This is not really an issue we're seeing around the world. Um, I think it's like a bunch of quasi, uh, you know, people in bureaucratic positions decided they would like stop enforcing traffic laws and like somehow it was like just going to work out. And, um, you know, and so I think this experiment's coming to an end and I'm, I'm really glad to see uh, New York leading the way. Moving on to the next news story <laughs> in terms of New York City and the e-bike trade-in program. Uh, what um, New York City has done, in addition to the automated traffic ticketing system, is uh, start an e-bike trade-in program uh, designed to help delivery workers swap low-quality, fire-prone bikes for safer, industry-certified models. Unfortunately, the program is off to a rocky start. Um, it started in July, so let's just say it's been two months. But since July, only three bikes have been traded in. And experts are saying that the city's 60,000 plus delivery workers aren't participating and they have any number of reasons. Language barriers, cost of the trade-ins, a slow and somewhat difficult approval process. Um, and so, um, you know, I think w- what we're seeing is uh, some of the policies uh, in New York that are working well, some that are working more poorly. Um, and just kind of sticking on this policy um, train, uh, one other news story that's in this policy space is about the California Highway Patrol. Um, they have been rolling out an e-bike training program, uh, teaching riders the best safety product, uh, practices. Rather, 
Um, these safety practices include things like maneuvering skills, rules of the road. Uh, the reason that this was ruled out is because of the growing number of bicycle-related crashes in California. There were more than 9,600 last year. Um, and this is maybe a good question for you, James, to hop in on, and, and maybe we'll agree on this and maybe not. But what do you think? Is the state giving the resources to the right folks? Like, is the you know target audience for safety the e-bikers, or is it somebody else? Um, well, two different stories here. Um, I mean, in terms of the highway patrol, I think it's, I think it's good. I think like, you know, the more, um, I think from like a community perspective, the police are thinking about, uh, e-bike safety and, um, working around e-bike safety. And again, a lot of people even look up to, um, you know, like kids might look up to police and listen to them more than they would someone else. So I think it's a, I think it's a good effort. I, I, I applaud the, the idea of it. Um, on the New York City e-bike trading program, again, this is something we've talked about a lot. And again, it's off to a very bad start, uh, a very bad start. And again, I think we've, we've talked about this in, in line with like what CARB is trying to do here in California with their e-bike program. And, um, you know, we've had Melinda Hansen on the podcast who runs the Equitable, uh, Equitable Project. Community Project, yeah. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> the New York Times is pulling a lot of punches as it relates to e-bikes, and this was kind of their latest hit. Um, but I think the data is really bad. Like, um, you know, we have to get these e-bikes off the street, um, and this program's not working. Seems like it's well-funded. Um, what's going on? Who's accountable? How long do they have? You know, what's plan B? Because plan A clearly isn't working. Um, on the surface, I know there's been some talk of why it's not working, um, but on the surface, trying to get someone who's a delivery worker who has roughly a 400 to $600 bike to trade in their vehicle at a spot, disclose who they are, and trade it in for a vehicle that costs anywhere between two and three thousand dollars. Like on the surface, seems like a really bad program, um, and so uh, I hope it it's got to turn around. So it it might just you know it might just be that it needs to be turned over into other people's hands because um, we do need to get these vehicles off the street. But yeah, this is a this is a swing and miss. So you know it, whether whatever baseball analogy or you might want here, like hopefully. We'll get another swing at it, but um, it's got to change. And um, again, similar to what we're seeing in California with like the CARB e-bike program, these these incentive models are taking too long. They're too confusing. They're too kind of full of, I think, uh, um, red tape, and they need to get a lot simpler. And uh, I hope I hope this is a case study and how why things need to get simpler. Yeah, just recognize that the process needs to be absolutely seamless for the person who's expected to engage in the process. I mean, if there's not going to be regulation around people not being able to have these low quality fire prone bikes, um, and they're starting to be, but there's not that much, then you know if you're going to do an e bike trade in program, it actually has to be an e bike swap program. Like there's got to be an incentive for somebody to do this where they get a better product for this you know, no price essentially by just trading in their own bike. So agreed with you that I think the um, policy design here is is pretty flawed and maybe is done within the constraints of what policy can do, but that's not done with the, the user in mind. So to be honest, I've actually been pretty embarrassed by the policies we've seen over the past few months, apart from the e-bike incentive uh, programs, where I think that um, policymakers have just done kind of a shit job of saying that the e-bikers are the ones who need the re-education rather than the motorists or charging e-bikers um, for things that really like motor vehicle drivers should be charged for or, you know, not putting dollars towards um, uh, putting in proper bike lanes, but instead saying or even changing, you know, speed uh, speeds uh, of roads, but instead saying like, let's put, you know, uh, folks on uh, different parts of the street. So again, I think there's some pretty embarrassing policy making that's happening right now. Um, and I look forward to highlighting some of the better policy that, that ends up happening um, over hopefully the next uh, coming months. So James, let me um, just talk about two news or uh, two business news stories before then turning over to you to talk to, about uh, vehicle launches. The first one is um, one of your favorite topics of the past six months. So, James, do you want to guess what I'm going to discuss? Van Moof. Of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. James is already bored. James is so bored. So, so um, <laughs> the, the topic at hand is that cult e-bike brand Van Moof has been bought out of bankruptcy by Lavoie. Um, Lavoie is a company that makes high-end scooters. They're based on McLaren's applied or McLaren Applied's Formula One technology. When Van Moof went bankrupt earlier this summer, it left 190,000 riders in limbo. 
one of whom was actually my friend, and she refers to it as the um, diamond brick that she has in, in her in her backyard that it like literally doesn't move at all uh, now. It's just this um, this like leftover piece of of hardware. Uh, in the article, it didn't say what the price of acquisition was. Lavoie's leader said that it spent tens of millions of dollars, so uh, far less than the hundred and eighty million or hundred and eighty million dollar uh, hundred eighty million dollars that. Um, uh, Van Mook had uh, had raised, um, but it uh, did say that um, it's going to inject some stability into Van Mook's operations. It's going to rely on third-party retailers for servicing and maintenance, and it hopes to um, get the products back up to speed. So, James, still bored? Is this interesting? Is this what you expected? Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious how your friend's vehicle is bricked. Like, um, mine still works. I'm, you know, maybe it's got stuck in a software loop, updater's loop, or something. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting, but I would I'd say my 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 van move has has been running just fine. Um, in terms of uh, you know clearly we had Lavoy on uh, a couple episodes ago, right? So it's uh, you know he he didn't mention this. Um, I'm not sure exactly how long this has been in the works, so this kind of, kind of happened pretty quickly. Um, and so it's I think it's great ultimately that see Lavoy back it up, and you know of course they have the the funding from McLaren, so um, this is going to a bigger a bigger company for sure. Um, and you know, I, I think I'm. My only comment would be I'm. I was really excited about Lavoie scooter and, and how much they would go into really scooters as a, a main form factor and focus there. Uh, clearly, Bamboo is a very different form factor. So I'm curious to see you know what that's like and how that might change their their launch plans around the scooter if it does. Um, you know, because that's a you know just very different. Now again, maybe they think of it as like this is a, a sedan versus an SUV. I'm not sure, um, but I don't think there's a lot of good proof points of of crossing over between scooters and bikes. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see what this means for Lavoie. Or they're ending up being a uh, multimodal micromobility provider and trying to corner some kind of market or think that there's the same uh, customer um, and so that they can just sell multiple vehicles to the same customer base. Uh, it's just one hypothesis. Okay, so final, final news story, final business news story. And this one is actually a really cool one. Um, Kenya has revealed the de- details of an ambitious new plan to encourage electric motorbikes adoption. They're doing this through a manufacturing partnership with an African startup called Spiro. Um, President Ruto, uh, who's the president of Kenya, said that Kenya currently has a thousand of the new bikes. There's another 10,000 on their way. And Spiro uh, has established a plant in Kenya. They're gonna be um, uh, assembling up to 1,000 vehicles daily, which is pretty pretty crazy. So in 10 days, they're going to have those 10,000 vehicles uh, for Kenya and hopefully uh, be able to do much more business uh, in the country. So again, think that this is super, super interesting. This goes with uh, another one of my hypotheses uh, that I repeat every episode, and James reminds me that I repeat every episode, which is that I think McKinsey has vastly underestimated the Latin American, Asian, and African markets, and I think they're going to grow at much higher clips um, than certainly we are in the U.S. and uh, in North America, and then uh, even in Europe. Uh, and so I think that's actually where we're going to see the most most growth, and where I think we should see the most companies pivoting. So James, before you go into vehicle launches, are you going to disagree with me, or are you going to agree with me? Uh, I think it's, I mean, I think what's juxtaposes first the, you know, equi- equitable commute projects program. And what I think is cool about this is this like is clearly a a place and a, a policy that seems very ambitious, right? Like not just, you know, coming out and saying, oh, let's do something. And like they're putting real numbers behind this, right? So we want 1,000 new bikes a day out of our plant. That's exciting. That's what I'd expect out of New York and New Yorkers and the culture of the U.S., um, and yet again, we're we're pointing to another policy um, where like there's no accountability, there's a lot of money, and like nothing's getting done. So I think this is again a trend we should watch with you know specifically in the U.S. where a lot of policymakers doing a lot of talking and actually not getting anything done. Um, and so to put you know the equitable commute project on blast and to put other projects on blast like CARB that we're seeing here in California, um, here's Kenya who's saying we're going to ship a thousand a day. And watch us do it. So again, they need to do it. But at least that's a big number. They're putting it out there. It's not big. It's not virtue signaling. Um, and that's what we need more of. And so I like that. I like this story. And I hope it. I hope it happens. Amazing, James. Launches. Let's hit the launches. So um, first up is from our friends at InMotion. So InMotion, 
Um, we had one wheel on, we had Kyle from one wheel on a couple weeks ago. Um, Emotion is, you know, an incredible company when they've come out with what they call a new V13 Challenger, which goes and you know, Julie, I really wanted to ask you if you, if you were going to ride on this unicycle, cause it goes, it is a It's a unicycle? Speed. Yeah, it's a unicycle. So they, um, oh yeah, no, they're amazing. Um, but the top speed is 87 miles per hour. It has a 4,500 watt motor. Um, which I, I have no idea how you'd have that much power between your feet. Looks goofy as shit. Yeah. And 87 miles per hour, though, which is just, you know, like like, no. uh, like Luke said, you know, you got to be brave Absolutely to ride not. this thing. Absolutely um, not. It also has a great miles? 124 miles. So, like, you can go for a while on this thing um, and, at, at a very high speed, it appears. So, yeah, I was just wondering, would you, would you be on? No, no. I mean, it looks super goofy. It looks super goofy. And unless I'm going to be like in a superhero movie and I like need some transport that's not like flying around. Absolutely not. I'm probably not going to do this. I mean, 87 miles. Let me give kudos where kudos are due, which is this is kind of incredible that they have a unicycle that goes 87 miles per hour. And I would like to see it get to 87 miles per hour and also maybe like, I don't know, um, race a cyber truck in the first 10 seconds to see who can go faster or five seconds or one second even um, I think would be really interesting, but no, you're not, you're not going to see me on this electric motorcycle. Yes. Electric unicycle. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's, um, I got a, there's an amazing photo I'll share of, um, this guy on a one wheel here at Encinitas and on a lawn chair, he like put a lawn chair on, um, on his one wheel and was cruising it down the road. And I just, I randomly saw him. That's more my speed. Like, yeah. It was so cool. He looked, he looked, it looked amazing. It's like, what is underneath <laughs> him? How is he cruising like that? And he was, it was a one wheel underneath a lawn chair, um, which was incredible. Uh, but actually let's stay in the world of like, uh, kind of goofy, but would you ride it? Um, and I wanted to go to real quickly, sorry, I've lost it here because I'm going out of order. Okay. Yeah. So UK based Northern light motors has a new line of recumbent bikes, which if you want to talk about maybe not the coolest look. Oliver and I were on our favorite vehicles at Eurobike were by far the recumbent bikes. Now, again, I would rather you not no, shoot me while no, on one. No. They are so fun. But no. it, Northern Light is taking this angle on recumbent bikes, which is maybe if we make them look like like sort of um, quasi-Formula One race cars, like especially a more traditional Formula One, that'll be like fun and sexy and cool. And it can have a cockpit and a protective shield. Um, it may be even like a, you know, a better flag to, to you know, the, the challenge of the a lot of recumbents you're seeing very low, which makes you, it feels cool, but it also feels a little dangerous um, for other people seeing you. So they've come out with this new line of recumbents that has you know a certain design aesthetic to it. I assume to make it a little bit cooler to ride. So Julia, first off, am I going to find you on a recumbent, normal recumbent? And then what do you think of these Northern Light recumbents? Oh, no, you're not going to find me on a normal recumbent, although I would try it. And I agree that maybe in like the, you know, light of darkness and without any cameras around, like I would I would just delight in being on a recumbent bike. Um, what I do think about the northern light design is honestly, it looks a little gimmicky to me. Like, I don't understand what the purpose is of trying to look like a Formula One vehicle, especially if you're going to be a recumbent bike. And it reminds me a bit of like a go-kart or like a soapbox thing. No, go-kart, soapkart, whatever those things are called, go-kart. Um, and so I don't I don't know. Like, whereas I could get behind um, light electric vehicles and other types of even three-wheelers, like, I'm not sure I can get behind this. It just seems gimmicky to me. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think the recumbent, you've got to try. Once no, the recumbent has a real challenge on its head because... It is the cool. It's the it's the best. It's the best ride in all of micro. I think. Really? How? Yes. Just what is it? The, the turning radius? Feels, like I just don't it understand. It feels so cool. Like when you get going on a recumbent, you know, wind in the hair. You know, you got like a. You don't have you that much nice here. Cup holder, like it's just incredible. So um, it's going to be yeah, James's gotta, neighbor on the one wheel with a lawn chair, and then James in a recumbent. Hundred percent. Like just in a retirement community. That's how I'm going to go. Like right, just like that. It's going to be great. Um, so yeah, shout out to recumbents though. You do have a brand image problem. we got to figure it out. We're not sure Northern Light is so I'm just going to do it here. Um, okay, Julia, we're going to flip over again here and go a little, have a little fun. So a couple like quirky things out of the micro world. One is uh, a, a YouTuber, um, kind of outdoor enthusiast, Jack Stewart, who has built the world's tiniest cabin, 
And of course, why would he build the tiniest cabin in the world? It'd be so he doesn't have to tow it behind you know, his F-150. He's towing it behind his electric bike. Kind of cool, kind of fun. Um, how do you feel? This is not the first tiny cabin we've covered in like the newsletter. Like, There's a lot of this going down now where people are trying to what build. What a sentence to say. This is not the first tiny cabin. This is not the first tiny cabin. These pods so are weird. becoming a thing, I feel like. Um, so, you know, are you going to buy a tiny cabin anytime soon? Can you imagine? I can see this in Silver Lake. You know, you go up to the mountains. You can't. I mean, I could see it in California for sure. Lake. Yeah, yeah. Camping in Silver Lake. Just in the hills of Silver Lake, uh, the, the forest of Griffith Park. Yeah, maybe I could do that. I would I'd certainly go to the beach. I mean, honestly, this is like a goofy that I can get behind because I think it serves a purpose. Um in terms of you know what it's trying to do, um, the cabin itself looks looks a little heavy, so I'm not sure how it actually would would ride. But um, yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I originally got into micromobility because people are weird and they just like do things according to their own tastes. And so if there's even one guy who likes to have a little cabin that he just tows behind in his bike, I'm down. I'm good with it. Okay, well, shout out Jake. Sorry, um, or Jax. Uh, Julia thinks you're weird. I think you're perfect. So be, nothing you're doing here is weird. <laughs> But um, yeah, uh, here is something that's weird. Um, so this is well, the file, interesting but not recommended. Uh, a university student in England has used disposable vape batteries from eBay to power his electric scooter. So he had this kind of bet going on. He said, you know, I bet I could use these disposable vape batteries. I could put them together in my scooter and I could drive. Now, in the world of we have a lot of challenges with batteries and micromobility, Let's just first off say we do not advise anyone actually do this, but it does. He does. He has done this, and it does seem to work. So um, I don't know what this is. Some weird recycling program, Julia. Um, is this something? Could it, I mean, like, is this on vehicle launches and section, or like, what this, are we doing here? This is, this is like, yes, this is who like knows? This could be an entirely. This could be a new business model. Vehicle launches to like <laughs> now we're just like in the realm of the absurd. Like we need a Rider's Choice Award ca- category that's just like what is the most absurd micromobility vehicle that has been created. I think that this would go in that category. But no, you're not about somebody who does disposable vape batteries and uses it to power an e-scooter and then they like launch this vehicle commercially. I really applaud this person who like I don't you know, if, is he going to graduate uni or not? It seems like maybe he's got a career as an entrepreneur or as somebody who thinks about the circular economy. Yeah, circular economy. I'm going to go with circular economy. I'm going to give this guy some credit. Um, but yeah, no, this this feels like vehicle launches. As we've now departed from that. Oh, wow. Okay, not on theme. i got to go back on theme. Sorry for all the people out there. Uh, you know, these are some of like the most clicked on links in our newsletters, by the way. I know, these they're are, actually pretty this amazing. This is pure This is pretty amazing. This is pure um, entertainment. But let's get back to the vehicle launches as, as Julia's requested. So a couple, two two out there, um, two two titans of the bicycle industry are appear to actually be serious about e-bikes. So we've covered this a little bit in the past, but um, Specialize is out with their new Globe uh, Globe Hall LT. So they already came out with a Globe Hall. The LT has the long tail, which of course is the you know, probably the most popular type of cargo bike in the U.S. Um, you know, the, the Rad Power Four, Rad Power um, as like the example, Rad Cargo Power Four as the example. That's probably the best selling. This is uh, coming at a price point of thirty five hundred dollars, which is good, I think, for Specialized. They were criticized a little bit for the global haul price. This is a little bit lower, um, and it looks like it's got all the the, the bells and whistles of Specialized. The other one, probably the bigger news though, out of the cargo world, was the Cannondale. So. Cannondale came out with the cargo wagon and the Wonder Wagon Neo. Uh, one is a front-loading cargo. The other is a long-tail cargo. The front-loading cargo, unfortunately, is not going to be out in the U.S. I think this is Cannondale not thinking the U.S. people want this. This is unfortunate because I feel like there's not enough front-loading cargos in the U.S. like you see so much of in the, the prevalence in, in Europe. Um, but yeah, there's another one with all the high-end um, components you'd expect from Cannondale. And, you know, they're really going for it. I feel like they're, you know, de- dedicating their website to this and um, uh, really great videos and great marketing. I feel like they've done it for these launches. So it's great to see them get more serious about electric bikes and not just putting batteries on their, you know, their on and motors on their traditional bikes. So yeah, Julio, um, not sure if you have a thought here, but specialized in, yeah. in Canada. Yeah, I mean, serious. I'm kind of bored. This is, this is the new story that bores me. I feel like every time... It's almost every week that we're like, finally, the big guys are getting really serious about this. And I'm like, they don't put out anything that's that interesting or at scale. I mean, looking at these bikes, I think 
these are bikes that are super functional that hopefully people will adopt. Finally, they're at more palatable prices, although I think they still need to continue to drop that. I'm actually pretty disappointed that they're not doing a, a front-facing cargo bike or whatever it's called in the U.S. Um, yeah, so I think this is my turn to be bored. I'm just like ready for them to do something that's a little bit more ambitious or at the very least like a lower price point so that they can get broader adoption. Um, and then I would love to see it. But for right now, I'm like, eh, fine. Okay. Whatever. Try again. I'd rather have Riding a, a vape-powered scooter or like Weird. the world's tiniest cabin. Okay. Okay, there we go. You're you're converting now. We have a whole new launch category. And then finally, uh, shout out to our friends down here in San Diego from Juice Bikes. Uh, we had Tori Harris on the podcast uh, a couple months ago. Now they just released the Scorpion X2, their electric moped. They say, um, but this is also um, you know kind of in the moto style, thousand watt motor, big motor. Um, but this is meant to um, this is meant to ride as a class three e-bike. So it's not meant to ride as a moped as far as I know. Now there could be some trickery going on here in the app, but I'm not sure if that's actually happening. But they did release it and it's good to see they hadn't released a vehicle for a little while. Um, so it's nice to see that they've got this new vehicle out there and um, you know, Tora is one of the OGs in the space. So it's always interesting to see what they're what they're making next. Do we do a giveaway on this, James? We did a giveaway, not on this vehicle, but with Juiced, yes. Okay, all right. Be great to do yeah. a giveaway on on this vehicle. This yeah, is another one where I'll put my put my hat in the rank. It's a that's a very good looking bike. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree. All right, Julia, that's it for launches. Um, Are you sure? Next Nothing else is, uh, weird that you want to share about ooh. you know launches or whatever. Yeah, there is. There's more. We had to cut the news a lot. So once we get back into a normal scheduled program, you will you will uh, definitely you know we'll, we'll get some weirdness in there for sure. <laughs> But yeah, awesome. now we're over to Patrick. Talk to Patrick Worth today. Are you ready? Ready to talk to Patrick. Okay, right on. Let's go talk to Patrick. Today on Ride On, James and I have a very special guest on the show, Patrick Worth. So Patrick, welcome. Patrick is the VP of Mobility at Balwaz Group. Um, Balwaz, if you haven't heard of it before, is a European insurance company that's headquartered in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, the company was founded in the 1800s, 1863 to be exact and it offers a range of insurance and pension solutions, as well as investment products. Uh, but Patrick, and the reason we're having him on the show is not necessarily to talk about insurance, although honestly, that's probably something that's underreported on in the micromobility space. Uh, but it's actually to talk about the uh, new group that he heads up uh, in venture capital. It is really, really cool to see an insurance company get into VC and take a very different approach, or what we think is going to be a very different approach. And Patrick, you'll have to tell us. Uh, to not only investing, but also the ongoing relationship uh, that companies have with an insurance company. So welcome, Patrick. We're very, very glad to have you here. Patrick, maybe you could start with just telling us about your role at Valois and some of the investments you've made to date. Yeah, super. Thanks a lot, Julia, for the introduction and happy to be here. Um, yeah, just quickly to Balwas. So Balwas, as you said, is an insurance company, but we are heavily investing in mobility. Uh, so we decided a few years ago that the insurance space is undergoing um, a very deep change. And this is not triggered only by the insurance world. It's triggered by changes uh, around us. And this is in mobility very significant. So you see the mega trends uh, we will mention later, which influence mobility and influence a lot the ownership of a car, which is a core business of insurance since a long, long time. So we decided to go into mobility and not only as a VC, as you said, we would like to build something sustainable long term with strategic impact to what we do today but also build a new business line. Um, that's our purpose and idea in mobility. Very interesting, Patrick. And maybe let's just start with the basics. How does insurance differ for auto mobility versus micro mobility? I mean, as Valois is looking at automobiles versus as Valois is looking at, you know, e-bike companies, et cetera, just, you know, again, from the basics, how does insurance differ? Um, this is not an easy question to answer it sounds so easy but um it depends how you define a car so uh, a car insurance sorry for saying that but you have um the classical ownership of a car everybody knows um 
you buy a car, you have an insurance and that's it. But if you already go to car sharing, then it's even closer to a bike sharing because then you have different users, it's uh, short-term renting, you have new data points for risk calculations. And that already goes then uh, in the gray zone to say we are already at the bike sharing sector or e-scooter. Um, because these are completely different risks you have to calculate with different data. And that makes it difficult because we don't have a history of 100 years. We can build on our risk models. We have to come up with new stuff. And now imagine uh, what is a premium if you rent out an e-bike. This is super tiny, small amounts. And now invest a lot of money into data models, um, automatization and all that stuff and embedded insurance. This is really a challenge. So we are still learning. Um, but that comes also with the car sharing. So it's not only bike versus car, it's, it's the ownership model, which is most important. Yeah, Patrick, I know that was a little bit of a, a dorky in the weeds question. But for me, that's actually really interesting because my background, I come from the mayor's office in L.A. And when I was at the mayor's office uh, was when the scooter boom was happening in L.A. and in the re uh, surrounding SoCal area. And what we found is that um, from a regulatory perspective, we had to ask scooter providers to get $5 million of insurance coverage. There was one company that was able to provide that insurance um, for the, the scooter companies, and it was Lloyd's out of London. And so it ended up being a huge barrier to these scooter companies um, to being able to operate in LA because of this insurance company. So again, I, I know it's a little bit of a, a dorky question. And um, for some of our audience, they're going to be like, what? Why are you talking about insurance? But I think it's actually super important. And the point you just made about automobility and the fact that we have 100 years of data versus micromobility and that we don't, I think is very, very interesting. So Patrick, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing with venture capital. It's weird to have a VC out of an insurance company. No? I mean, what? What is your? how does your thesis change because you're a VC at an insurance company? That's that's a quite good question. And we have to be careful to use the, the term VC when we talk to our management because we are not a classical VC, as you said. Um, so as a CVC, I would say we are closer to that, but we are taking more shares of the ventures. Why do we do that? So we use the VC approach. We're looking for the best teams in the world who are fitting into our thesis uh, with growth potential, uh, but we are not the best partner for unicorns, I would say. What has changed is when we look at what we do, that we really look what kind of assets we can combine. Assets from the Balwas core business with our client access, for example, or with the ventures to support each other. So for us, it's much more important. So coming from the VC industry, my background is um, parts of it, at least. Um, it's not uh, investing into company, being in the board and, and hope to get to the highest valuation, have an exit. It is supporting much more combined stuff, have this in the due diligence process already included. How can we make this venture much more successful? And this is the most important difference when we talk to founders that we would like to support, but it's not the classical VC case making three years the best exit is a long term relationship. And we try to combine products, services to make customers happy. That's uh, different to classical VC. Yeah, that's really interesting. And to me, that also um, sort of speaks to maybe <laughs> the risk averseness of being at an insurance company and wanting to make sure that the startups that you're investing in are helped along the way and are successful in the long term. So Patrick, let me ask this last question and then I'll turn it over to James to, to ask some questions too. But um, what types of investments have you made to date? I've just learned, Julia, that you really from, you know what you're talking about <laughs> uh, to the things you just <laughs> mentioned. But what, what kind of investments have you done? So we have in our portfolio uh, so far, we have done 12 investments. Um, we are focused on Europe. Um, so the ventures must have a, a business in Europe, uh, in best case, in one of the countries we are very active in the insurance market also. Um, it is uh, service-driven stuff. Uh, software um, is in our focus. We are not the best partner when it comes to hardware development, manufacturing. Um, so we have invested in peer-to-peer -peer car sharing in Gomor. We have invested in parking solutions, Pakandi, for example. We have something in the electric mobility space, which is... Uh, but also a service uh, data-driven company, which is called Tronity, which is operating in 44 countries already worldwide, but with a focus on, on Europe. Um, so we have several investments um, in different domains, um, as said, driven by the megatrends of electrification, sharing and all that. Um, yeah, but not, not hardware and autonomous, for example, is for us nothing we invest now, because as said, we would like to bring assets to the table and we're looking at the autonomous driving, of course, a lot, but this is too far away for us. So it does make sense to invest. Interesting. 
Interesting. Yeah, James and I would debate. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, interesting. I think James and I would debate too on that. Uh, how far away are we from autonomy and probably have different answers. We talk about that quite a lot. Yeah, Patrick, so um, a lot of, I think a lot of our listeners would be interested or in, you know, positions inside of big companies um, and they might want to hear from you. How do you actually go about starting what I guess you call a CVC inside of a company, um, you know, that has so much history, uh, you know, 160 years old? Um, what does that pitch look like? How do you get the, the resources to actually start something like that inside of such a big, you know, entrenched company in a, in a very specific industry? I think a lot of people would want to know. Uh, how you did that and and what that looks like? <laughs> that, that's that's quite interesting that you ask that. <laughs> I'm I'm just uh, have to smile when I listen to you because it was just uh, just a battle, but finally we got there. Um, uh, at the beginning, it was a decision from the top management. So there was a new strategic phase, and Balwas decided we have to invest more into diversify the business we have today. That was the cornerstone, let's say, and then we build on that. We defined goals. So what does it mean we would like to diversify the insurance business? Um, what are the, the ambitions we have there? And then we had the freedom to develop a, a way to that goals. And uh, we have defined and KPIs until 2025. That is the first time horizon milestone we have. Um, then we pitched, how can we get there? What amounts do we need? Is Balwas willing to take this long-term investment period? was 2019 at these days um, and finally yeah it was convincing enough that we said hey if you would like to get there we have a plan it looks like that it's based on all the learnings we have had the years before with the VC we have we still have a classical VC CVC um, based on the innovation stuff we did based on the analysis of different domains is it in, in living is it in in, uh, in health is it in mobility yeah, we then convinced the top management in several iterations to agree that this is a good idea, helps Balwas to stay significant and relevant enough for the future. <laughs> Amazing. In, in terms of uh, your capital structure, did you did you raise any uh, outside capital or is this all, all sort of supported? Your only LP is, of course, the, the company itself. We have been asked from externals if they can invest, but currently the setting is clearly that we have a single LP. This is Balwas. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not doable that someone else invests and we still proceed with that because, again, our goal is to establish a new business line in mobility for Balwas, which is a bit of a conflict if you take external money. Nevertheless, some ask us really to invest, which is, of course, quite nice. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, to, to talk about the thesis that you laid out there, you know, you mentioned uh, this, the mega trends really being electrification and maybe even sharing mobility in, in, in urban areas. Sounds like two areas that you're you're very focused on. Um, how do you think, I'm very curious how you think about um, where you might invest in say more of a traditional electrification model that could be the electrification of cars versus what I think is getting at a little bit more your thesis, which is like how, how cities will really transform um, to be, you know, more climate friendly, to be, uh, you know, better places to basically live and work in, in less congested ways. So uh, I'm curious with, with that in mind, how you, you know, what, what types of companies would you be looking at specifically as it relates to electrification and shared that might be different than, you know, people thinking, okay, here's another company investing in, um, you know, electric cars, let's say. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a, is a question which, which I can answer now half an hour, but I try to make it really short and to focus on very specific areas. Um, what we have observed in cities is the car is a problem. It takes a lot of space, um, pollution, all that stuff, you know that. Um, if you have electric cars, at least we can do something on the pollution. Nevertheless, it takes a lot of space. So to make a city more lovely to live in, uh, maybe we need less cars or at least less cars on the streets parking. And, and this is something we have in mind uh, when we, we invested, for example, in the peer-to-peer -peer car sharing, what I just said. This is partially electrification, but it's also classical cars. Nevertheless, at the end, we would like to reduce cars in a city. Um, less cars means better quality of life um, and, and finally leads into higher value of living there. And just two examples, I said Gomor is a company operating in six European countries. It's a peer-to-peer -peer car sharing platform. Um, and they got to the point that a car is not used only one day per month if you condense it to all it is at least more days used a month and that means people get rid of a car you have less cars in the city and they are much better utilized 
Another element we put there is the parking area. So how can we bring cars from the street parking to other limited space maybe, but still free? And there we have Pakandi. It's in a company we, we own already, uh, which offers to open up spaces which are behind a barrier. And so people don't have to drive around to find a parking lot. And uh, you, the utilization of parking lots which are behind an area are much higher. So two things which finally should reduce the the number of cars in a city, which is maybe on the short term, the most promising thing we can do. Yep. In, in terms of, um, I, just reading a little bit more about your thesis. So one thing you've, I think you've said um, is this idea of trying to make the car a, a less attractive option in a city. Um, and of course that can come in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, through regulation and, and, and things like that. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, just your own opinion, like again, studying technology and studying um, you know, what power laws and kind of what ends up winning, it's it's often not the case that a, a less attractive option wins with the customer. Um, and, and again, maybe in many in many situations, I think shared is often framed as a as a less attractive option. Um, how do you think that changes over time? How do we make um, some of the investment, you know, so, some of the things that we know are so key to um, shared mobility actually more attractive than the car? Or do you think it's like you're betting on maybe the government coming in and making it just way less attractive for a car to be bought? I'm just curious how you how you think about that specifically. Yeah. James, may I ask you a question? Yes, of course. Do you like to drive a car? Um, I Well, no, not really. But I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a normal person in that respect. Um, I don't have a problem with, with driving. Um, but I, I, I prefer riding, which would be what I consider most of my electric bikes and other small modes. But that's quite interesting. So we don't have to convince you that you don't need a car. You have, should use more your bike or, or other modes of transportation. So you are not a person, you, you maybe have a car, I don't know exactly, but um, you yep. are not a person saying it's so comfortable, I cannot live without a car. It looks like not, but um, so what is the, con because you start with, do we have to convince the people to not use a car or is it even by we have to tell them you're not allowed or there are toll system in cities like London, you have to pay much more. So it's a luxury if you can drive into a city. Um, I think it's a mix of both. We must have um, attractive alternatives. So if you just talk about bikes, if a city is prepared that biking is super nice, um, I just spent a day in Copenhagen in, in Europe and Denmark, um, and the city is super well prepared for, for biking. They have highways for bikes even so that you really can drive quite uh, fast on these ones with e-bikes, classical bikes or cargo bikes. So if a city is prepared like that, it is fun to have your bike and not take the car. If I think about other cities in Europe, they are not prepared for bikes. There you are happy if you arrive where you would like to go by car um, and not got killed. Um, then, of course, maybe the car is much more attractive. So it's really how make the alternatives to a car as attractive as possible public transportation, shared mobility, um, bike uh, usage or whatever it is, that must be so attractive that you say, staying around with my car in, in a traffic jam is not any longer interesting for me. That would be my yeah. answer to that. And that is the regulator maybe to has uh, the city is quite important what they what they do in this direction. And do you, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious as a, as a, of course, a group with a lot of, I, I assume a lot of um, influence and power, like do you, do you feel an active responsibility as an insurance company to help with some of the lobbying efforts that are so important for some of these companies that just don't have nearly the lobbying capabilities to gather infrastructure to create, you know, for instance, here's a good one. I, I noticed um, a lot of people in Europe lately uh, that are in our community have talked about bike theft as a really big problem. Um, it's a bike, it's a problem here in the US too, but it also is in, in Europe. Like, do you, uh, you know, so for instance, one of the things that I've seen proposed is we should treat, um, at least in the US, I'm not sure exactly the penal codes in, in Europe, but one, one argument is we should treat uh, e-bike theft as car theft. So it's a felony, it's not a misdemeanor. Right now, if you steal a bike, it's a misdemeanor, slap on the wrist. If you steal a car, it's grand theft auto, generally comes as a felony, and of course, the, the fines and, and the, the penalties are much higher. Like, are there, are there things like that that you can imagine? Of course, you have a ton of data on, on how you think about risk modeling and, and how you ensure risk modeling. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious if that's a big pitch to the startup. Like, let's help you actually think about uh, regulation. Let's help you think about how we can lobby the government on your behalf. Um, is that is that part of part of your services? In all honesty, this I would love to say yes, but in all honesty, <laughs> that's uh, quite 
quite difficult. You, you know it. You need a lot of uh, resources to do that. It's a long-term game to change really something. What I can say via the ventures we invested into, we have access and some kind of influence to some cities. So we bought our way in, I would say. Um, Vianova is a company based in Paris and London who is doing uh, mobility services, data collection, and then offer mobility services to cities. They have a very close relationship to some of the biggest cities in Europe. Um, Gomorra mentioned, so they are super close to the cities they are in and thinking about how can we make the city nicer when it comes to mobility, let's frame it like that. So, um, And then we support, do we open doors because we as Balwas have a lot of access, that's not the case, but our headquarter, for example, is in, in Switzerland, in Basel. And there, of course, we are super close to the city because we are a big player. In the cities, we are, as a insurance, quite active and have a, um, a branch or um, an office, a big one. There, we have good connections. But in the others, in all honesty, it's quite difficult to, to have impact. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, and then maybe um, before I ask it over to Julia after this one, um, one question at least here again maybe a little more u.s centric um uh understanding of what's happening but you know one thing that we've seen a lot of is venture capital is really fleeing the um, quote-unquote micro mobility space and transforming city space where uh, uh, around small electric vehicles that's primarily coming out of um some really bad uh, uh returns you know so it's like i think bird has raised around 900 million dollars in institutional vc they're worth um, I think yesterday I saw a tweet that they were $13 million. Um, this is the same for companies like Hellbiz and Marty. I mean, just, you know, uh, I would say uh, losses of capital that we haven't seen maybe since the dot-com uh, uh, bust. And so in the, in, the, in the U.S., you hear a lot of people talking about like, oh, we, we're going to write off the entire space, right? They, oftentimes you hear VCs are pack animals. They run together. They're, they, they seek momentum together. Um, and so... In, in the US, like it's gone, it's, it's, you know, it's almost like a, it's, it's people stay away from it. Uh, I'm curious, one, if those headlines impact your day-to-day -day at all, and maybe two, if um, you feel more internal pressure to try to uh, explain your thesis more, because some of the companies that, uh, of course, dominate the headlines have really maybe soured it for everyone else. Um, and I'm just curious if that's the case for you, and or maybe that's a little different in Europe. Um, no, it's not different in Europe. Definitely not. Um, what you described is a bit black and white. Uh, so I would not say it's uh, rid of, of the whole concept of shared mobility. There are successful players. We have insights. Sorry, I mentioned it again. Go more. It's shared mobility and they are quite successful. Um, they are close to profitability. They will be profitable quite soon. So I think this is a success model. Um, they have uh, more than 3 million members. So it's, it's not a tiny one. Um, but as you said, we have examples where the trigger has been to be successful to grow at all costs is this the issue of the mobility domain no we see it everywhere i would say in all industries now in the startup industries in different domains and there has been a lot of money and if someone would like to spend money because money was cheap and it was difficult to to have any kind of return in, in other domains. So why not invest into startups? And that was, of course, a hype. You know it better than I know if you look at the numbers. Um, and this is not only related to mobility. So we, as I said, we see it all over the place. Uh, some are failing, exactly the flagships maybe, even the prominent ones, which collect a lot of money, the unicorns. Uh, but I know more than one example, uh, which are great positive examples of being profitable quite soon and have a robust business. Um, that guides me to your second question. Does it have any impact on us to argue a bit more internally when it comes to the investment decisions and the management? Yes, of course. We have been asked, hey, how's it going with our portfolio? Uh, do we have some issues um, with the Silicon Valley Bank? Of course, there was a question, hey, what, what is the impact? Um, but nevertheless, our thesis is more focused, maybe not only on the unicorns, more on the five to eight year period to get to profitability that was from the beginning so it has not changed a lot i would say on our individual investment thesis and how we act really interesting and really interesting again to think about your investment thesis and how it might differ or be the same from other vcs um patrick i'm going to make a couple of comments because you said so many good things uh, before i ask you a question but just a, a couple of comments on, on some of the things that you said first of all 
uh, about your point on how you have to make other options more attractive than the car. Yes, this is exactly the point. I think a lot of people miss this point too, where they think you have to make uh, being in a car less attractive. Actually, I think it's that you have to make uh, other mobility options more attractive. One of the ways in which we saw that in LA and uh, in my work, uh, in my day job at Rocky Mountain Institute or RMI, is we talk a lot about avoid, shift, and electrify. So avoid being um, the uh, idea of having land use where we build housing next to places that you tend to go or vice versa, things that you tend to go to next to housing. Shift in the way that you have to have people shift to mobility options that are, again, more attractive than the car, not the car being less attractive. And then finally, electrify, you know, electrify everything else. Um, so that's point one. I think you're spot on about making mobility options more attractive than the car. The second thing I wanted to um you know, to talk a little bit about is just this point about pricing and about really embedding externalities into cars and thinking about how we price uh, cars and even electric cars differently based on weight, um, based on the size of the car, based on the land space. So I think, you know, you not only have to do this avoid shift electrified, really it's about pricing. So now that I've gotten off of my soapbox and back into questions, um, one of the things, Patrick, I did want to talk about uh, just briefly is you know, at other VCs, I understand the deal flow can be like 3,000 companies a year. They might look at 40 seriously and four they really uh, make investments in. What does your deal flow look like and how many investments do you tend to make per year? It's more or less exactly the metrics you mentioned. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, interesting. Yeah, we are, we are a bit limited, let's say, because our thesis is a bit more narrowed, uh, as I said. So we're looking not at 3,000, it's more 2,000, I would say. Um, we look carefully at, yeah, 40 is a good number, um, 30 to 40 per year. And we do something between two to four new investments per year. Of course, for long investments, we are quite interested. As I said, it's a long-term game we are playing here. So we have two to four new ones per year. So that's the metrics fits quite mm. well. And this is how we pitched it internally. We would like to use the VC logic, build a portfolio because some ventures will fail. We have some of these, um, but others will be successful. So we need a, a broad portfolio to be finally on the long run successful. So we have more or less the same metrics. Interesting. Okay, maybe two more questions for me, Patrick, and then we'll go ahead and close this out. Um, so the first is, do you have peers at other insurance companies? Are there other VCs at other insurance companies? You mean doing the same? Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, not so many. From an outside perspective, if you ask uh, insurance companies, hey, where are you focusing uh, outside your core domain of insurance? Very often you hear mobility uh, around the home is very often health, of course. But mobility is mentioned, I think, 30% of the time. Insurance companies say, yeah, we're we investing into mobility. The, the most important point is you have to look into the details. So how do they do that? What is their motivation? What effort do they put into it? What kind of investments? And there we don't have really one company in Europe which is doing the same. Luckily, there are some worldwide we can talk with, uh, get learnings, share learnings, and it gives us the comfort that we are not really on the completely wrong way because if you're the only one doing something, it might be not the best thing. But we have some in Canada is one one doing it um, in South Africa in, in China, of course, which is a different environment. Nevertheless, you can learn a lot. So there are some, but it's not so many from the insurance industry trying the same way we do it. Very interesting. All right. So final question, Patrick, and then we'll let you go. Um, we do have a lot of startups who listen to this uh, podcast. Um, and so my question for you is, as you're looking across your deal flow, as you're looking across your deals, where is the gap? Like, what kind of company would you like to see in existence or come to you? And um, how should people get in touch with you? Um, so every company which is something between, I would say, seed, could be sometimes even pre-seed, and a Series A, Series B would be nice. Um, later on, it might be tricky for us to be the best investor. As said, in the service domains and digital scalabilities uh, must have some business in Europe, at least. Um, much more specific, we are looking into fleet management, fleet ele electrification, transition is something we are super interested currently. We are doing deep dives in that domain. Uh, tailored driving stuff, it's not autonomous, but maybe a bridge solution we are looking into. So very specific, these things we are quite interested. But again, everything which is service uh, around bikes, cars, whatever it is, um, and scalable in, in Europe would be absolutely nice. Um, how to reach out? We have a nice website, um, so you can can look at that one. Balwas Mobility, you can find um, on LinkedIn. You can find my 
me personally, I'm more than happy if you reach out there. Um, and and on, on our other channels, you will find Balwas too. And, and finally, it will find the way to me. I'm more than positive about that. Amazing. Patrick, well, Patrick one, thank one you more, so much. I, one more, Julia. So, Patrick, um, as, as, <laughs> entre as, as an entrepreneur, I'm just curious, maybe a bit of a US-centric question. But, um, you know, I remember when um, my previous company raised a lot of money um, from more traditional VCs, Sequoia, GGV, Capital, others. Um, we were looking to take a potential, a, a big investment from Unilever Ventures, so a CVC, a, a, a corporate VC. And, you know, the, it was very hard to get the VCs around the table to agree to that. Um, especially here in the U.S., there's a lot of stigma, I think, around corporate VCs when you when you have already raised from traditional VCs. Um, even and of course, we were able to get that over the finish line because there was such a large investment in our core product as part of the uh, strategic or corporate investment. So I'm just curious to the founders out there who are hearing, "Don't take corporate VC." You know, what's your 30 second pitch on why that's not the case and why you're a, you're the best partner for them? We are the best partner because uh, we are following the VC strategy, so company first. It's quite important for us that the venture has all the freedom to execute. We have no special clauses and uh, to limit the growth. Uh, that's quite important. What we additionally bring to a VC beside money is really strategic values. So we can give you access to clients. Uh, we have a data um, in the cloud service, which you can use. We have marketing agencies supporting us and you. So we have much more to give than only money. Uh, nevertheless, we are open for every kind of VC investment in the future. So we are quite flexible. So I think we are a good addition to classical VC investment. That's great. And I, I do agree with that. I, you know, as, as, as that, I think that stigma is wrong, at least to get it here in the U.S. And so um, I, I think uh, I just as a personal experience working with Unilever and their, their investment team was great. So, um, yeah, I think, I think what you can offer is, is tremendously valuable. So as Julia said, thank you, Patrick, for coming on. And um, yeah, we look forward to seeing you. If not at Micromobility America, or I don't know if you're, any of your colleagues are making it next month, definitely uh, at Micromobility Europe next year. Super. Thanks a lot, James and Julia. Great. Thank you. Have a great day.